Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Okay, hashtag open the floodgates, uh, new series getting underway today that'll take us uh, through these next three Sundays towards Sunday the 21st of May when we're having a gift day. Very simply, we're having a gift day because we need some more uh, money. Uh, and we need some more money because of the unexpected things that I've spoken about on the video and you've seen in other places. Uh, and we need a bit more money um, because ourselves, at the moment, we're not giving quite as well as we had expected. But on the other hand, and I'll come to this in a moment, God looks after this church so we don't need to panic. So no panicking, Mr. Mannering. The forms that you'll need for the gift day are... Uh, those people over 55 understood that reference. The rest of me just looked a bit blank. The forms for giving... You can find a link for the gift day giving form on the email that goes out every Friday with details about what's going on in the life of our community. If you don't get that, send it into the office and you can get it. The link is on Facebook, it's on YouTube, it's on Instagram, it's on Church App, it's on my blog, everywhere else you can possibly think of looking, you'll find it there. And uh, you can complete it and return it electronically. That would perhaps in some ways be the easiest and simplest thing to do. You can take a copy as you go today, or you can print it out and fill it in, bring it back for Sunday the 21st if you haven't emailed it in. Also in all those places, perhaps more importantly, is the link to sign up for the prayer room. So the prayer room will start on the 18th of May. It'll run at least through to that Sunday, 24 hours a day, 24-7. You sign a slot for an hour as an individual or as a group. You've heard me talk about that in various places. You click on the link and you can sign up for your slot there. There. The sooner you get that done, the sooner we'll get a feel for how the whole thing is going. That would be brilliant. <clears throat> Breathe. There is a promise that God has made. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. How much blessing do we want? And we're fully aware as gospel people that the only reason or, or the, the majority reason for God to bless us is because, of course, he wants to bless because he's that kind of God, but that we might be a blessing. God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. That's the, the theme, the drumbeat that goes right through the scriptures. As God pours out his blessing on his people, it is in order that his people might be a blessing to those around, even to the ends of the earth. So bless us, Lord, we pray, for the sake of the last, the lost, and the least. Bless us for the sake of those who don't know you yet. Bless us for the sake of our families and of our children. Bless us for the sake of the town of Ipswich. Are you with me? Yes. It's for God to do something in us that he might do something through us. And God puts a condition on this promise, understandably, and we might begin to think, what is this condition that would cause God to pour out so much blessing that we wouldn't know what to do with it. In fact, God goes one step further and says, in this particular thing, you can test me. You can test me and prove whether I'm right and true and faithful. You can test me to see whether I keep my word. And we might think of all kinds of things that we might need 
to create, to be the right condition for God to pour out his blessing. We might think about whether I can stay through the whole of the prayer meeting without counting the number of light bulbs and then dividing it by the number of window panes. We might wonder whether it's how many songs we can sing without looking at the screen. Quite a few more this morning after what happened earlier on. We, we might think, how many Bible verses do I need to know? None of those things. Very simply, this promise that comes from the book of Malachi is dead simple. The condition of the floodgates opening is how we handle our money. There was an audible silence <laughs> in the room for those listening online. This is a series about how we handle our finances. If we don't handle our finances, our finances will handle us. So a few important introductory comments for these next three weeks. Money is very emotive. What I say generally may appear hugely insensitive to your particular situation. So I'm apologizing in advance. You may not have control, for example over the household finances. You may be in debt today, properly in debt. Debt is one of society's last taboos. We'll talk about almost anything, but admit that we're in debt. But debt creates an incredible stranglehold, which is another significant factor in the mental health epidemic that we are facing. You need to know, and you need to share this with everybody, if someone is in debt and seriously wants to get out of debt, we have professional help to make that possible. You do not need to stay with the noose of debt around your neck. God loves you. It's full of shame and guilt and awkwardness and embarrassment. Push through that just the once, and you can be helped to find a place of freedom. And maybe for some of us, that's all we need to hear this morning, and you can make your way through for coffee. Second thing about this money series is to relax. Take a chill pill. Oh my word, I come to church once a month, and I've come on the money Sunday. I don't know. If you are visiting, we don't talk like this very often, do we? No, see? And you're glad about that, aren't you? Relax. The reason you need to relax is there is, and I mean this, absolutely no compulsion whatsoever in the whole wide world for you to give anything. If you feel pressured or guilty, you've heard me say this over 20 years in this church, don't give. That's not a reason to give because you feel pressured or guilty. God will look after this church. He's done that for 160 odd years and I don't suspect he's going to stop anytime soon. We do, of course, encourage as we grow in our Christian faith to take responsibility for all that God says about what we possess, including Christian giving. But it's about doing it freely. You with me? So we're relaxed, aren't we? Just so you know, I don't know and won't know and will never know what you give or when you give it. Just so you know, I can talk about money freely without any embarrassment, at least on my part, because it doesn't change my personal circumstances, despite what rumors go around the place. I am employed by this church, but it's not a bonus-related scheme. (laughs) Just so you know. If it was, I would have sent the offering round again. But it isn't. So I didn't. Whatever your material wealth, whatever your material wealth. 
the principles that we talk about are true for all of us. It's about attitudes, not amounts. There's a tweet right there. It's about attitudes, not amounts. 50p can be a better gift than 5,000 pounds. What we do know is if we want the floodgates to open, we need to handle money right. Today is not about giving. Turn to your neighbor and say, phew, today's not about giving. <laughs> We're having fun, aren't we? We're bonding. As soon as we think about money in a church context, we think about what we're supposed to give, we think about the offering, we think about tithing and all that sort of stuff. But handling money right doesn't start there at all. Handling our money right will always go wrong, I think, if we start there. And sometimes we've started there, my Christian duty is I've got to give, I've got to do something, I've got to this, I've got to that. And it becomes a struggle, it doesn't feel very sustainable, it feels all overwhelming, and we hit a roadblock fairly early on. So where do we start? There is a universal attitude. Come with me to any house with young children. There is a particular toy that belongs to that child. Action man, Barbie doll, Power Ranger, Fairy Castle doesn't really matter. Like all toys, after a while, they lose their shine and the child that's surrounded with stuff, the toy ends up in the corner of the room, other toys perhaps get piled on it, it gathers nothing but dust. And there it stays for days, weeks, months, even years. Until another child visits that house. And this toy that has not moved in decades is picked up by the new child. Suddenly the original child is all annoyed and agitated. Suddenly he or she can't settle to anything, but points to that toy that hasn't moved in weeks or months and says to the new child who now has it in their arms, that's mine. That's mine. It doesn't matter that they hadn't played with it. For weeks. It doesn't matter that they're not going to play with it ever again. But a child, barely able to walk or talk, will exert his or her influence over that particular item. That belongs to me. I own that. I have rights over that. It might be in your hand, but don't you dare forget it's mine. And probably we say, I want it now. And I'm going to play with what I'm playing here with that toy under my arm because you're not going to have it because it's mine. And I don't care how much you want to have it. It's mine and I'm not going to play with it and that's going to irritate you. And I get some pleasure because ownership is everything and it's mine. And then, of course, we grow up, don't we? (laughs) And we write our names inside the book before we loan it to someone. Every time you open that book, you make sure you know it's mine. (laughs) And we walk into a room with a CD playing, and we do not comment on the music that we enjoy. We say, is that my CD you're playing? Is that my pen you're using? Is that my cup you're drinking from? That's my chair you're... That's my pew you're sitting in. It's mine. It's mine. Don't forget that we put fences around our houses, and we lock the doors... To remind everyone else, this is mine. This is my space. And we ensure it, protect it, guard it, count it, keep it mine. 
What is universally true is that we are obsessed with ownership. Let's remind ourselves of the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two things immediately follow. First is that God is. He just exists. He just, just is. I am. He called his name very appropriately. Here I am. I'm here. I just am. God is. Secondly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all of it. It's all his. We can say it together. God is. It's all his. Go. God is. It's all his. Okay, so that, that's like lesson number one. This is 101 Bible study. Here we go. Right at the beginning. God owns everything. He owns the apple orchard. He owns the tree. In the apple orchard, he owns the apples on the trees. He owns the juice that comes from the apples. He owns every plant, every rock, every animal, every person, everything, because God owns everything. He owns nail clippers and makeup brushes. He owns aardvarks and George Foreman grills. He owns licorice all sorts and nuclear reactors. He owns Brillo pads, cheese graters, coffee machines, basketball hoops, even Donald Trump's towers. It's all his. All of it. All of it. All of it belongs to him. Say it with me. The earth is the Lord's and the world and all who live in it. Everywhere. God goes around. He goes, you know what? That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. (laughs) And then a few stars. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. By the way, they're all mine. Not only because he created it, but also because he sustains it. He is before all things and in him all things things hold together. He owns you. He owns me. He owns our house, the bed we sleep in, the cup we drink from, the food on your table, the table itself, the chairs around the table, all his. Your car, your bike, your bus pass, your computer, your iPod, your golf club, your assets, your inheritance, every last iTunes download. His. All of it. All his. Even Ed Sheeran's castle on a hill. But this has always been really hard for humans to grasp. We've universally struggled with understanding it. So God kindly, because he's a kind, benevolent, generous God, has put some checkpoints in place to help us remember that it's all his. The first reminder in the Old Testament was something called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee worked a bit like this. You'd go about your business, buying and selling, making money, losing money, making a bit more than your neighbor, feeling smug, saying to your neighbor, that's mine, not yours, all the rest of it. What's it say about coveting? You can cover your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's ox which presupposes you can tell the difference. (laughs) So so you go about buying, selling and stuff, and you're making a bit of money, and you're doing quite well, you're doing better than anybody, you're feeling quite chuffed, and because you've got more money, you can make more money. It's easier to make money if you've got more money, isn't it? Yeah? So if you've got less money, it's harder to make money, so as you make more money, you're able to make more money and make more money. You're feeling quite pleased. The 50 years are up, and God's press is a big reset button. It's a hard reset button, where everything goes back to how it started 50 years ago. That was the plan. And you go, that's not fair. I've got all this land now. And God says, no, that's absolutely fair because it's mine. It's always been mine. This has just been a little Monopoly game you've been playing for the last 50 years. And I want you to remember that it's mine. And it all goes back to square one. Just like a hard reset on whatever you hard reset in your world. We've earned it. We deserve it. No, says God, it's mine. Seriously, this is in the Bible. Leviticus, if you want to look. Slaves get set free. Isn't that brilliant? In those 50 years, you've become in bondage to slavery, and that gets released. Your debts get released. It was an amazing moment of freedom. It's only the rich people that were a bit miserable about it. But God presses the reset button, and it all goes back to the beginning, because God reminds the people, actually, you think you've made it, you think you're earning this, it's all 
mine. Second reminder uh, was something called the first fruits. This was particularly to do with harvest time, but not just harvest time. First fruits would be when the main harvest comes in the August time, but, but earlier on in the spring, you would get the first fruits of the harvest. And you absolutely need that harvest in order for your family to survive. So it's not a, a, it's not a kind of a, something you're ambivalent about. It really matters. When you get those first fruits, it says, give those first fruits, even before you are sure that the full harvest will come, give those first fruits to God. A reminder. All that might come, might come, but in the end, it all belongs to God. So what you get first, give that back to God, which is what, of course, the whole principle of the tithe was all about in the Old Testament. When you get something, give a tenth back just to remind yourself that it's not really yours anyway. Quite simple. It's not yours. It belongs to the Lord. And God has to repeat himself so many times because people are obsessed with ownership. We are possessive about possessions. Fourth reminder is God's word. And there are numerous places in God's word where he reasserts that actually it's all his anyway. Every animal of the forest, hey, that's mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, that's mine. In fact, those hills, they're mine, all mine. Uh, And he says, just in case you missed the point, the silver, you know, the money, the real stuff, that's mine. (laughs) The gold, hey, that's mine too, declares the Lord. It's almost like God screams from time to time, remember that all this stuff is mine. But the trouble is, at that point, our individualistic, capitalist bent screams out, hey, hang on, it's not God's. That's not God's at all, it's mine. I worked for that. This house is mine. I worked 40 years for this house. These holidays, they are mine. I've worked early and late For a whole year for this holiday, it's mine. It was my sacrifice, my energy, my vision, my success that has brought all this to me. And then God slips something in. Don't shoot the messenger. He says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Never forget that work is a gift. And finally, sixthly, wealth comes from God, wealth and honor come from you. Each one of us would be nothing without him. What pompous arrogance sometimes rises within us when we justify our own uh, success and achievement. I deserve this. I've earned this. Before a God who could have made us a snail or a flower, but instead made us creative and gifted in his own image. There are many, many successful people in this room. There's a sense in which everyone's successful in so many things here. It's all God's. All of it. Well, if it's all his, then what about us? Well, God made us. That's very clear. And it says that God blessed us and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish, blah, 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 blah. And then it says a bit later on, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So we're to be fruitful, we're to fill the earth, we're to subdue it, we're to work it, and we're to take care of it. Five things that in today's contemporary language we would say are all about management. And the Bible and Christian tradition would use a more traditional word, which is all about stewardship. Stewardship. That's us. A steward is someone entrusted with another person's wealth. We are stewards of God's creation. Managers of this material world. 
We're not to rule as tyrannical dictators, exploiting it for our own ends, but as one who is in charge until the master returns. It's not ours, but we have been given it for his best interest. Didn't Jesus tell a story about that? Doesn't Jesus tell lots of stories about that? Why are there so many stories, or parables as we call them, about stewardship? A master entrusting talents to a servant, a vineyard owner entrusting the crop to his employees, and so on. Why does Jesus talk about it so often? Because it's true, and it's knowledge 101. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and we are entrusted with it. Woven into the very fabric of the whole created order is the notion that humankind are no more than ten who look after everything owned by the master. Trouble is, everywhere I look, people want to tell me that it's mine. Do you know, you can customize your whatever it is, phone, you can customize your TV, your Xbox, you can customize your house in order to express your individuality, in order that you can tell the world that this is yours, this is not just any old thing, this is your thing. There are a hundred varieties of Happy Meal at McDonald's. Because it's not a McDonald's meal, it's my McDonald's meal. And we're paying the price. Instead of ruling things, things are ruling us. No wonder Jesus says, whatever you do, don't store up treasures on earth, because it's not even yours. It's not even yours. As some wit said, you never see a hearse pulling a trailer. There are no pockets in a shroud. It's all his. And it's on loan, but for a moment. I want you to imagine, and we're closing with this. I want you to imagine... I want you to imagine that God has given you a sum of money for you to use. Imagine how much that might be. Imagine a thousand pounds if you like. Imagine ten thousand pounds if you like. Whatever comes comfortable. But you've got this sum of money to use. You put it in an envelope and you write on the envelope God's money. Because God's given it to you to use. What are you going to do with the money in the envelope? I promise you, you'll think very carefully about it. You'll prioritize purpose. You'll want that money, because it's God's money, to really count, wouldn't you? You'd want that money to make a difference in other people's lives. You'd want that money somehow to impact God's kingdom in the world, to achieve something that's bigger than just the money itself. You'd want to do something, whereas you know the Father in heaven will be go, that's my son, my daughter, I'm proud of what they did with that. You'd want to feel good about how it was used and spent and all that it achieved. That's exactly what happens every time you get a salary, Your pension is given to you, an allowance, a benefit is given to you. When money is placed in your hands, it's all his. It's all his. To do something good with. To do something kingdom with. To bring about the rule and reign of God on the earth with it. And of course, it's not just money, is it? It's not just money. God gives us the environment to live in, so we should steward it well. He gives us our physical body, so we should steward them well. Physical fitness, nutrition, stewarding our emotions, our sexuality, our gifts. God gives us every single day, so we should steward our time. God gives us our wealth, so we steward our money. God gives us our position of influence in the world, so we should use it for his kingdom purpose, so on and so forth. God gave you salvation, so every single day it all belongs to him. And we live for his praise and for his glory. The reward of stewardship is enormous. If we could break through from the, this is all mine. And the next Christian step, as I observe, is this is all mine. But because I'm really good and godly, I'm going to give this little bit to God. 
but this is still mine. God has this bit, this has mine, and God must be thrilled with the bit I give because I've got this and he's got that. Push right through. It's all God's. And there is an incredible reward for breaking through into that place. And many of us would give up everything for the reward of stewardship. I've called this message a content steward because the reward is contentment. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Contentment. Oh, what would you pay to be content? To stop being restless and agitated and anxious. What would you pay to be content? You see, when you're a steward, your trust is in the master, not in your money. For as long as your trust is in your money, you will live agitated and anxious because money comes and money goes. But he says, I am with you always. Secret of contentment is to know that your trust is in the master. Paul summed it up like this at the end of that same paragraph. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So if you're ever anxious, take a walk in the park. Look at the flowers and the birds. Remember what Jesus said? He says, you know, who do you think looks after the lilies and the birds? Who do you think's got all this covered? That's the place of peace, isn't it? That's the place of liberation, of freedom, of contentment. And I'd suggest to you today that that's worth every penny. Let's be quiet.